I'll begin with a question, something for you to think about. Does God have a plan for your life? Does God have a plan for your life? And if you know your Bible, then you probably will tell me a verse, and you may know it by heart, and it's from a book that we've already looked at this year, because we're going through the whole Bible in a year. It's from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29, 11. You may be familiar with that. When I, whenever I ask if God has a plan for your life, Jeremiah 29, 11 tends to come forth, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, right? Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. How many of you know that verse? Okay, a lot of us know that verse. But did you know that that verse was given by Jeremiah right after a national tragedy? It was right after something way worse than 9-11. I know we look at that as a national tragedy that took place. But in the nation of Israel, the most holy place was the temple of God. The temple was completely destroyed. And not only that, the Jewish people were taken into captivity by Babylon. And Jeremiah says, I know the plans I have for you. I don't think they heard that very well. I don't think they heard that the way we hear that verse today. And they certainly didn't like the verse before it. The verse before Jeremiah 29, 11, verse 10, I'll show that one to you. It says, thus, thus says the Lord, Jeremiah said, when 70 years, did you hear that? 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. 70 years to fulfill God's plan. How many of you can even wait a week when you pray for God to answer your prayer, for his plan to unfold? i got to believe that Jeremiah said these words, he was ducking stones, man. They were picking up stones and throwing them at him because 70 years for the plan to unfold. Well, this morning, we're looking at two books in which we see that plan come to action. We're looking at Ezra and Haggai, and I wanted to get Nehemiah in there because that was part of our reading plan, but I couldn't do it. I love Nehemiah too much, man. I just couldn't just try to fit him in at the end because um, some of you are Lions fans and you'll get mad at me and you'll want to <laughs> head for the door. But I'm going to do Nehemiah next week. Um, I, I love Nehemiah. It's a great book on leadership. But they all go together in terms of the timing of it all. And um, they all are about the fulfillment of God's plan after the 70 years. The return to Jerusalem, the restoring of the temple, and the walls of protection around the city. There are these three books. I cannot help but see God's plan for the faithful Christian. I can't help but see God's plan for the backsliding Christian. And I can't help but see God's plan for anyone that wants to get closer to God. Do you fall into any of those categories? Because if, they, if you do, then you're going to love this message because it will speak to you. Throughout the Bible, there's been one main truth that has never changed, and that is God has chosen to dwell on earth in his temple. 
you read the whole Bible, if you've read it all the way through, you know where does God dwell? It's always in his temple. In First and Second Kings, which we just looked at recently, we saw that God came down in this cloud and it filled the temple so much so that if it happened right now, right in this place, we would not be able to see one another. And they called it the Shekinah glory. It was so wonderful. The glory of God dwelling in his temple. And I want to tell you today that God is still dwelling in his temple. And it's God's plan for you to restore the temple. And we're going to see what that really means in this message, to restore the temple. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that we would hear your words and that you would speak through me. Father, this is about worshiping you. This is about glorifying you. This has nothing to do with our own righteousness, but it has everything to do with your son Jesus. He is the temple. He came and died for us. May we see that today, Father, through your word, through Ezra and Haggai. In Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. So it's around 600 B.C., if you want a time frame, when Jerusalem was um, ransacked, decimated by Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, remember, when Solomon was in reign, um, the, the, the nation of Israel was the most powerful, the richest nation. And then over time, um, evil king after evil king, and, and now we're at the point now where the southern kingdom, Judah, is uh, taken down, Jerusalem is... is is knocked out, the temple is destroyed, and all of that. Remember how much it cost to build Solomon's temple? It was $140 billion in today's dollars. It was an amazing place, and it was all just gone. And everything was taken and stolen and taken back to Babylon, and the Jewish people, even worse, were now scattered all over Asia. And Jeremiah prophesied that in 70 years, you will be able to return. And so now, the Babylonians are not in power, the Persians are in power, and the last two verses of Second Chronicles are actually the first two verses of Ezra, which is cool, because that's where we left off last week, right? In Second Chronicles, and now we're picking up in Ezra, and the same two verses at the end of Second Chronicles are the same two verses in Ezra. So I'm going to read them to you from Second Chronicles. It was the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, the word of the Lord, came by the mouth of Jeremiah that it might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, and he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Thus says King Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's charged me to build a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with you. Let him go up to Jerusalem. Personally, I find this very fascinating. Why on earth would this powerful king, right? He's the most powerful king on, on earth. He says, I, I have all of this. What does he care about building a little tiny house of worship in Jerusalem? He's not even Jewish. This isn't even his... It doesn't make any sense. Why does he care? Proverbs 21.1 explains why he cares. In Proverbs 21.1, it says that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. 
and he turns it wherever he will. Have you ever read that proverb before and thought of that? That the king's heart, that a person in power, doesn't matter. Their heart can be turned. Their mind can be changed. Because God is the one in control. So I don't care who our president is. I don't care who our governor is. I don't care who your boss is or who your teacher is or who your, your, your principal is. The Lord can change anyone's mind. And if there's something going on in your life that you can't seem to fix on your own, but you really believe someone else above you can fix it, you don't have to change their mind. You just have to pray. And that is why we sang, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, All Our Sins and Griefs to Bear. Right? And what a privilege to carry, let me hear you, everything to God in prayer. Pray! See what God will do. I'm amazed at how many times in my own life that I just forget to pray, but then when I do pray, and God's plan unfolds. God takes care of it. He put in the mind of Cyrus, restore the temple. And so he does. And this is a, a geographical distance that is, I mean, why would he care about that little place called Jerusalem and the temple? But he does because God has put it in his mind to do it. And then on top of that, this is the really cool part, verse 7 of Ezra. Ezra is writing this um, history of, of the return to Jerusalem. And it says, Cyrus the king brought out the vessels of the Lord. Because remember, King Nebuchadnezzar had taken all of the, 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 the anything of value and he, he, he brought it all out um, and placed it uh, out. And, and, and he was basically giving it to the Jewish people. Um, to take back, totaled, all totaled, 5,400 vessels, cups, you know, gold, cups, silver, bowls. The best part about this is what I thought about. They don't have to register at Bed Bath & Beyond now. (laughs) They can just go and do what God has called them to do, right? They don't have to get new stuff. Now, Ezra... Uh, does not return on this first trip. He's the writer of this. He's recording all of the history here. So he doesn't go back in the first trip. He goes back in the second trip. But in the chapter 2, we see who does go back, who is leading this first wave uh, of exiles, uh, of people going back to Jerusalem. And his name is, I love it, I love this name, Zerubbabel. All right? Say it with me. Zerubbabel. Yeah. Zerubbabel's the leader. And he's bringing back with him 42,360 Jewish people. Okay, they're all heading back. This is all in your, in your Bible, and I'm just giving to you what you will read if you read Ezra. Um, the same amount of people, roughly, that live in St. Clair Shores, 42,000, right? There's about 45,000 St. Clair Shores. And you think, wow, it's a big number, but unfortunately, it's actually a really small percentage of the overall population. It's kind of a small percentage, and it makes you wonder why didn't more go back to Jerusalem. They probably got a little comfortable in their new surroundings. So, upon arriving in Jerusalem, you have these people that um, some of them had been exiled and some of them never had seen it before. And so Zerubbabel leads them into Jerusalem and the first thing they do is very significant. It says in verse 3 of chapter 3, they set an altar in its place 
because there was a fear that some of the people of the lands around them um, were going to overtake them. And so what they did is they offered burnt offerings to the Lord morning and evening. Now this altar is not something that they made up. This altar is something that they've been using since Moses put together the furnishings for the tabernacle. The same furnishings were used then in the temple when Solomon built it. And this particular um, furnishing, this altar, I'll give it to you in Exodus 27, verse 1. Moses was told by God, you shall make an altar of acacia wood, specifically five cubits by five cubits, a square table. And it will be three cubits high. Now a cubit is a foot and a half. So you might picture a seven and a half foot by seven and a half foot square, size of a king-size bed. If you've got a king-size bed at home, a little bit bigger than that, about four and a half feet high, and it had horns on each corner, and the purpose of the altar of burnt offerings was to sacrifice the animals. Now, you may say you may be an animal lover, and that may make you very sad, all right? But you have to understand why they did that. Why did they sacrifice animals? And the answer is because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no forgiveness of sin. That truth has never changed in the eyes of God. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And you should also know where the altar was placed. It was placed not inside the temple, but right outside the door. And that was significant because the only way you could enter the temple of God is to first make your sacrifice. You cannot go into the temple of God unless you have made your sacrifice. And if you have ears to hear this morning, I tell you that Jesus has made that sacrifice for the whole world once and for all when he died on the cross at Calvary. He is your sacrifice. He is the only way to God. He's the door. Am I right? God always meets people at the cross first, the place where the blood is shed. You cannot come to God with your own righteousness. You have to bow down at the cross of Christ. You have to ask God for forgiveness based on the blood of Jesus. Now do you know why we sang that song this morning? And if I could be so bold as to get you to sing it again, I've never done this before because I'm not a very good singer, but I'm going to sing the first line, and if you could sing the song, the line that comes after. What can wash away my sin? And what can make me whole again? And let's sing the chorus. You ready? All together. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain, I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You came in strong on that last one. Give yourself a hand. That was good. So do you need forgiveness? Now you know. You just go to the altar. Jesus is there. He has died for you. That is the gospel, as simple as we can put it. Amen? Amen. Come to the altar. I'll never forget my very first youth retreat. 
it was not actually as a youth, it was as a leader, because I was saved in my 20s. And when I went to my first youth retreat, there were about 200 teenagers there that were very excited, all right? It's, I guess when you put 200 teenagers in one place, they just get excited. Um, the first night of worship that we all gathered together was in this cramped basement of the lodge, all right? And, and in this cramped basement, they called it the chapel, um, didn't look anything like a church, didn't look anything like a temple, but I'm telling you, God was there. The Holy Spirit filled that place, and when the music started playing, the, the, the teens just jumped to their feet, and they started clapping, and they started singing, and it was my first experience of anything like that, and I was blown away, because they were praising God, and they were singing, and every night of worship was the same way. It was amazing, and God was at work, and every night there would be young people going to the altar and surrendering their life to Jesus and asking for forgiveness of their sins. And I just was so amazed. I just think about it and I still get goosebumps because we didn't need a fancy temple to worship God. We just needed to come to the altar. And I'm sure the Holy Spirit filled Jerusalem when they made their sacrifice on the altar before the temple was ever built. We just need to come to Jesus. Don't, isn't that right? Isn't that the truth? Now, they did start building the temple because that is where God dwelled um, way back then. And uh, in chapter 3, verse 10, the process was a couple phases. And it says, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David the king of Israel. You see, they're always going back to doing things the way it should be done and honoring God. And when they did that, when they built phase one, the foundation of the temple, it took two years to accomplish. So it was a two-year building project, phase one. And when they accomplished that, it says in verse 12, that many of the priests and Levites and the fathers of old who had seen the very first house, Solomon's temple, it says they wept. I think they cried sadness. They were sad because this temple was not like the first temple. And they were sad. But it does say that many shouted aloud for joy. It was bittersweet. Bittersweet. It wasn't quite the same, but it was still happening. And then some bad news came. Their enemy sent word to the king of Persia and said, King of Persia, these Jewish people, if they restore the temple, they will rebel. And the king listened to the enemy. Verse 24, the work on the house of God that was in Jerusalem stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, you might wonder, how long was that? How long did the, the, the building stop? And the answer is 16 years. 16 long years. Every Christmas, our family heads to Cape Coral, Florida. It's our big break that we have in the school year, and so we head down because we love the sunshine. Our idea of a white Christmas, I'm sorry if I offend you in this, but it's white sandy beaches, okay? <laughs> That's our idea of a white Christmas. We love it. And every year we go down there, we see this place, this little town, is building itself up. There's houses always being built, and I'll be 
going to this place looking for a fishing spot or this place looking for a fishing spot and I'll see, oh look, there's a new you know, house going up and it's fun to see. And I believe it's one of the roads that I go down, it's called Chiquita Boulevard, like the banana, right, Chiquita. And I go down Chiquita Boulevard and I look over and I see this house that has just a foundation. It's just a slab with some rods of iron sticking out of it and there's weeds grown everywhere. It's like this place, and we've been going down there for eight years, nothing has been built on this foundation. And it's ugly. It's an eyesore in the community. I wish that one year I would go back and I would see, it's finished. They did it. They, they actually built the house that was supposed to be built on the foundation. I'm sure the people in Jerusalem felt the same way. They looked at the temple unfinished. I'm sure they thought to themselves, when are we going to finish that? When are we going to be able to do that? And they were probably sad about it. I wonder if anyone here has had an experience with God. Maybe you've been on fire for God before, but not so much anymore. Maybe that's describing your life right now. I recall those youth retreats. Some of those teens would come back from camp on fire for God. Man, they were going to change the world. And within three weeks, they were back to their same old routines, got back into their old habits. The Bible that was next to their bed that they read every night somehow ended up in the back of the closet. It would happen often. Perhaps you can relate to that. A big experience with God at one point in your life, but then life just got busy. I wonder, is your commitment to God not what it could be? I'm here to tell you this morning, finish what God started in you. Finish it. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be satisfied with the foundation. Don't let weeds grow up in your spiritual life. It's not too late. Restore the temple. And that's what Haggai said to the people. Restore the temple. Haggai comes on the scene as a prophet to this nation. He speaks to Zerubbabel and says, in just two chapters, let's go. Let's finish this. You can do it. Haggai is only two chapters. Pro- prophesies like Elijah the prophet, shocking the hearts like a defibrillator, remember last week? Shocking the hearts of the people back to God. And he says in verse 4, he says, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? I assume that was a cozy little house that they had, a paneled house, while God's house is in ruins. Sixteen years, they just kind of got comfortable in their cozy houses. In verse 9, Haggai points out, you looked for much, but behold, it came too little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house is in ruins, and each of you busies yourself with his own house. Finish what you started. Restore the temple. This is why you can't get ahead financially. This is why things are falling apart. You're ignoring the temple. You're ignoring me. 
He says in verse 8 of chapter 2, Haggai says, The silver's mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. How many times have you thought to yourself, oh, if I just work a little bit harder, if I just do a little bit more, if I can just get through this season of my life, then I'll have more time for God. No, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of righteousness, and everything else will fall into place. Maybe that's all you needed to hear this morning. Seek first the kingdom, and everything else falls into place. Restore the temple. That's what Haggai was, that was his task, to get the people to do that. Now, Haggai finishes with a prophecy that I can't ignore because I think it's very important for you to see. He says in verse 23, it's a prophecy uh, of the Messiah to come. There's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about the Messiah to come. And one of those is in Haggai 2.23. It says, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declared the Lord of hosts. Now, Haggai is saying that Zerubbabel is a type, a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Okay, um, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. In the Gospel of Matthew, you see the line of David. The very first chapter is the genealogy. That was very important. That was a prophecy that the Messiah would come from the line of David, King David. And through that line, guess who's in that line? Uh, Matthew 1, verse 12. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Jesus falls in this line. But then Haggai also says that the Messiah, Zerubbabel, will be like a signet ring. What's a signet ring? Well, it's the king's ring that had power. And it also had a seal on it, the signet. And there was a, a law to be made or any, any proclamation. It would be sealed with the signet ring. And what he's saying is, is that the Messiah is the signet ring. And I'm telling you, Jesus Christ is the signet ring because he has the power to redeem you. And he seals you with his spirit. That's what Paul tells you in Ephesians 1.13. In Christ Jesus, you who heard the word of God, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed, what happens when you believe? You are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Oh, how important that is to understand what it means to restore the temple, that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. So Haggai brought the motivation. 16 years of no progress, and now the building, the temple, is restarted. It takes four more years to finish it. But it's really not completely restored. The reason why it's not restored is because how can it be God's house if God's not in it? Right? I mean, a building by itself is not holy. When I got here this morning, right, at 8 o'clock to set up and, and, and do my thing on a Sunday morning, I was the only one here. Right? It wasn't holy. It's holy when you showed up. And there's a reason for that. This is Ezra's calling. He comes from Babylon. 
on the second wave. Ezra was a scribe. A scribe was, like you say, scribble, scribe. All right, And they would copy the manuscripts, the Word of God. They would copy it. And they were so meticulous that if everything didn't line up perfectly, if one letter was off, they threw it away. That's how meticulous they were. And he arrives, and he is going to help the people be holy. So the temple is holy. And he is appalled. It's not because of the temple. It's because of the people. When he comes, he sees something that is an abomination, if you will, in the eyes of the Lord at that time and in that culture. Ezra chapter 9, verse 2, he says, For they have taken some of the foreign daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And I think it's important to understand why God did not allow Israel to marry anyone outside of their nation. First and foremost, it was to prevent them from worshiping the other gods, the false gods, right? It wasn't that Solomon's downfall, that he had so many foreign wives and worshipped false gods because of it, the Asherah, right, and the Baal worship. But secondly, it was important for them to stay in their nation because of the line of David had to be traced to the Messiah. God has always called his people to be holy as he is holy. That's never changed. Ezra did his best to restore the temple, but the people kept messing up. Nehemiah, you'll see next week, he did his best to help the people turn back to God, but they kept messing up. You'll see next week, as soon as he leaves town, they're back to their old ways again. And you look at, even today, and you wonder, Nobody's perfect, right? You might throw your hand, oh, nobody's perfect. But one was. One is perfect. And God waits 500 years from this point to send the perfect one. He sends his son, Jesus. And I think it's very significant that if you read the New Testament, you will see in the Gospels that Jesus himself says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And what temple was he talking about? Because they thought he was talking about the building. And what was he talking about? Himself. Because the temple was no longer a building where God dwells. It's now human. It's now human. And Jesus is resurrected, and he promises his Holy Spirit would come and dwell in the temple. And where is the temple today? Christians, look in the mirror. That's the temple. We are the temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul says it perfectly. Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not at your own. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That is a powerful verse right there. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Your body is God's temple. Everywhere you go, God is there with you. 
which kind of makes it easier to restore the temple, if you will, right? We don't have to travel anywhere. We don't have to uh, 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 build it up with bricks and mortar. We just need to do what God has called us to do. And what has he called us to do? Honor him with our life. That's how you restore the temple. Share your faith with your friends and your relatives and your associates and your neighbors, and then you restore the temple. Finish what's been started in you, and then you restore the temple. That's God's plan for your life. Can you restore the temple? Give me an amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to do this. Help us to honor you. Help us to, to see the truth in the scripture and how the temple has gone from a building to us because of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for his great love. Thank you that he is the way, the truth, and the life and that we are forgiven through his blood. Father, may we come to the altar. May we look at our life as broken as it is. And may we just trust in you to put it all together the way it should be. Father, we are just broken vessels. And we need your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.